Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law, and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to the 13th installment of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. This time, I'm going to continue talking about Article 1, Section 5 of the Michigan Constitution. On the last podcast, we spoke generally about free speech and what may or may not be protected under the Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 5 Free Speech Clause. This time, we're going to dig a little deeper and discuss other ways free speech may be limited or restricted. But first, your spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd be better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. I want to talk about a general free speech restriction commonly known as time, place, manner restriction. It's exactly what it sounds like. Speech can be limited based upon the time at which the person wishes to exercise their free speech. Speech can be limited based on the place where the speaker wishes to express themselves. And the manner in which the speech is being made can also be regulated. So let's get started. Our first case, Michigan Up and Out of Poverty Now Coalition versus the state of Michigan, 1995. This first case deals with the right to protest on the grounds of the Michigan State Capitol building in Lansing, our state's capital city. In December 1991, Michigan Up and Out of Poverty Now Coalition, which for the ease of usage, I'm just going to henceforth call them Michigan Up and Out, they received a series of permits to erect a tent city on the state capitol lawn in its hippy-dippy quest to dramatize the plight of the homeless. Now, as an editorial side note, I can think of nothing more elitist than a group of well-to-do people making themselves temporary homeless, knowing they soon will have a home and a warm bed to go to when they're done, quote-unquote, acting homeless. But I digress. The permit secured for their tent city expired on December 14th, but the tents remained on the capitol grounds until December 20th. Three days later, Michigan Up and Out received a permit for and held a rally on the Capitol lawn between the hours of noon and 4 p.m. At 4 p.m., the Capitol security began deconstructing the tent city, which had been there for nearly two weeks. As such, 
Michigan Up and Out applied for another permit to maintain their tent city and to hold a prayer vigil on the grounds. They were denied. Thus, the Michigan Up and Out filed for and obtained a temporary restraining order preventing the Capitol security from interfering in any way with the placement of Up and Out's six existing tents on the Capitol lawn while the litigating parties reviewed the rules governing the use of public areas such as the state capitol. After a two-and-a-half-month review period, with comments provided by the general public, the committee finally approved an amended version of procedures governing the capitol building and its grounds. It should be noted, the final version passed was approximately 20 draft versions in the making. The attorney of Up and Out even wrote to the group stating the revised procedures had quote-unquote succeeded in many respects. That quote is important. Why? Because the very next day the revised procedures were adopted, Michigan Up and Out sought the court to prevent the enforcement of those provisions. At a hearing, Michigan Up and Out objected to the new restrictions on overnight camping on the Capitol lawn, as well as preventing the placement of structures greater than three feet square thus precluding habitable structures like the tents. The trial court determined that the prohibition on overnight sleeping on the Capitol grounds was constitutionally allowed and held the new procedures created had a valid time, place, and manner set of restrictions within them. Well, Michigan Up and Out appealed to the Michigan Court of Appeals. The first argument Up and Out alleged was that the restrictions in the new rules were overbroad. A challenge to a governmental restriction is alleged when either of the following two things occur. 1. The restriction sweeps too broadly, thus prohibiting both protected and unprotected speech. Or 2. The restriction on speech creates an unreasonable risk of censorship. The Court of Appeals did not find that the restriction swept so broadly as to ensnare protected language in with the unprotected, but they did elaborate on the censorship piece. Michigan Up and Out argued that restrictions were written as such that it gave the Capitol Commission unbridled discretion to deny permission to anyone wishing to picket or distribute literature on the Capitol grounds. Additionally, Up and Out asserted that because the procedures recommend individuals notify the facility manager of an intent to distribute literature or to picket, it amounted to a license or a permit requirement. The court flat out said they thought Up and Out was misreading this provision. The court found that the provision does not impose either a licensing requirement or a prior restraint on speech. To the contrary, the procedures do not require anyone to obtain permission to picket or to distribute leaflets on the Capitol grounds. And the court points out, the facility manager has no discretion to deny picketing or leaflet distribution. The language, which has up and out all worked up and spazzed out, reads as follows. To inform individuals and organizations of the procedures for the use of public areas of the Capitol and grounds, it is recommended, but not required, that individuals advise the facility manager of their intent to distribute literature. The Court of Appeals pointed out, that this rule was purely a recommendation and it contained no hint of a penalty for noncompliance. Therefore, the court ruled, neither the facility manager nor the committee can prevent speech from taking place. 
There was no licensing component to this rule. So Michigan up and out lost on their first argument. They next argued the Capitol Committee is attempting to regulate expressive speech, specifically their right to put up tents for overnight sleeping, as well as the aforementioned picketing and leaflet distribution. But the court starts off by laying a foundation of well-accepted constitutional conduct. Specifically, the state may impose reasonable restrictions on the time, place, and manner of protected speech. They note that restrictions of this type are valid provided that they are not attempting to regulate the content of the speech, that the restrictions on the content of the speech are so narrowly tailored to serve a significant governmental interest, and that any restrictions leave open ample alternative forms for communication. An interesting point the Court of Appeals makes in their opinion is they say you need not worry about the necessity of furthering a compelling governmental interest so long as you're not looking to restrict speech on the basis of its content. Meaning, if the government isn't looking to restrict speech based on the content of what's being said, then the government needn't worry if it's going to run afoul of the time, place, manner analysis. It's only when a regulation restricts speech on the basis of its content must the state then demonstrate that the regulation is necessary to further a compelling governmental interest. In our case at hand, Michigan up and out never believed nor argued that the procedures regulated speech on the basis of content. And do you guys understand what I mean when I'm saying what, what the basis of content is, regulating speech on the basis of content? It means they're saying you can't say the actual things that you're saying. That would be the regulation on the basis of content. If you say that, um, if the government were to say, well, you know what, you are prohibited from saying the governor sucks. Well, then that's an instance of where you're regulating speech based on the content of what's being said. But Again, as we point out here, Michigan Up and Out isn't arguing that these procedures are trying to regulate the content of what they're trying to say, the words that they're trying to, to express. The court notes that this only leaves Michigan Up and Out to argue the procedures violated the time, place, manner restrictions, but the Court of Appeals found this was not the case. They laid it out as follows. The procedures do not destroy the public forum status of the Capitol grounds, meaning nothing has changed from how it's always been viewed. The Capitol and its grounds are there specifically to be used as a public forum for citizens of the state of Michigan to express their views regarding the laws and policies being created inside that building. The restrictions are simply designed to allow for an orderly time, place, and manner expression of free speech. The court notes that the procedures are both content neutral and apply to all citizens, meaning no beliefs are placed higher or lower in the value of anybody else's beliefs because this is the content neutral portion of the rules. But also, no person is being given more or less authority to express their freedom of speech over any other person. Additionally, the court rightfully explains the state has a significant interest in providing access free from obstructions into and out of the Capitol building for the public. If reasonable restrictions need to be established to restrict the physical obstructions to, say, doors leading in and out of the Capitol building, that is a legitimate interest. Finally, 
The court holds there are limits placed on the Capitol Committee's discretion to designate areas for picketing or distributing leaflets for the purposes of allowing safe ingress and egress of the Capitol building. This, the court views, as a narrowly tailored restriction, thus leaving other areas of the Capitol grounds available for the picketing and for the leaflet distribution. The next argument Michigan up and out tries is to say that certain provisions of the new rules limit the duration of a protest on the Capitol lawn. But again, based on the time, place, and manner restrictions, the Court of Appeal says no. They believed the restrictions on the time a person or group can hold events is reasonable. Again, the time limits apply equally to all individuals, regardless of what they're protesting. So again, just to be clear, gang, we're not talking about the people that are standing on the Capitol grounds protesting. We're not treating them any different. We don't care who they are. We don't care what their issue is. We don't care what the color of their skin is or what their religion is, what their gender is. We don't care at all who the people are. We're treating them all the same. That's that's the point of, of what the Court of Appeals here is saying. So whatever the whatever they're picketing about, Everybody's being treated equally regardless of what the subject matter might be that they're picketing in regards to. Similarly, the time restriction justifies a governmental interest in protecting the capital grounds and the safety of those using the grounds. It should be noted, the reason for the time restriction is so that the facilities department can conduct daily maintenance and cleanup of the lawn because of the trash left by protesters and leaflet distributors. For that reason, the Court of Appeals did not find a set number of hours, specifically 15 hours, 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., was in any way overly restrictive. So let me be clear. Let me, let me make sure I'm, I'm being clear about what I'm telling you. Folks can protest between the hours of 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. That's 15 hours worth of protesting if that's what they want. But the Court of Appeals said there is good reason why a protest must stop at 11 o'clock, it allows the department facility to then go out and clean up any damage that, that is done to the property, picking up garbage and whatnot, and then these folks can come right back at 8 a.m. and they can start all over again. So the last-ditch hope for Michigan Up and Out was their contention the provisions in the new procedures unconstitutionally restricted the number and size of structures that could be placed on the Capitol grounds. It was their belief this restriction was specifically written to target their tent city, which amounted to viewpoint discrimination, and that there was no justifiable reason for such a specific size limitation that a three-foot squared structure could possibly require. But, as you probably can imagine by now, this argument went down in a blaze of glory. The Court of Appeals again reiterated a restriction like this is content neutral, and it applies to any organization looking to put structures on the Capitol grounds. Even restricting the size and number of structures is content neutral, even if the tents are set up to express a particular statement. But even so, the restrictions serve a governmental interest in preserving both the aesthetics and the safety on Capitol grounds. The theory here is that a person who were to drive by the Capitol building lit up in all of its grandeur would be mortified to see tents set up on the grounds like it was a Girl Scout troop trying to earn some pain-in-the-ass badge. Similarly, groups of people living in tents for any duration of time are going to create trash, clutter, and damage to the grounds itself.
The Court of Appeals noted it was perfectly acceptable to place limits on the number and size of structures to avoid visual clutter and blight. For those reasons, the restrictions as created under the new rules drafted at the behest of the Michigan Up and Out organization, well, those rules were well within the time, place, manner restriction a government may place on protected speech. Although I think the Michigan Up and Out case does a great job explaining what the time, place, and manner restriction is, particularly regarding free speech, there's another well-known Michigan case that I wanted to discuss. And that is the City of Owasso versus Pouillon, 2002. In or around 1999, Mr. Pouillon stood on city property approximately 30 feet from the front of a dentist's office and about 300 feet from a church. At this time of day, parents were dropping their children off at a daycare and preschool organized within the church some 300 feet away. Defendant Pouillon was yelling at the parents, quote, they kill babies in that church, why are you going in there? Unquote. Understandably, this both frightened and upset the children going into the church. Mr. Pouillon would ultimately go on to explain the reason he chose the location he did was because the dentist publicly supported Planned Parenthood and abortion. Mr. Pouillon claimed that he opposed the church because several years before it had allowed Planned Parenthood to hold an anniversary celebration at that church. Due to his screaming behavior, Mr. Pouillon was charged and convicted for causing a public disorder pursuant to an Owasso City Ordinance. When defendant Pouillon brought his case to the Michigan Court of Appeals, he first alleged the ordinance impermissibly restricts his freedom of speech, but also lacked any compelling governmental interest. So, to better understand the ordinance, here it is in its entirety. A person shall be deemed guilty of a misdemeanor if, with the purpose of causing public danger, alarm, disorder, or nuisance, or if his conduct or her conduct is likely to cause public danger, alarm, disorder, or nuisance, such person willfully uses abusive or obscene language or makes an obscene gesture to any other person when such words, by their very utterance, inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. So what the city of Owasso was trying to do was limit the engagement of fighting words so as to keep the peace. As we know from the last podcast, when we discussed the vulgar language of two male co-workers against the female Detroit police staffer, that fighting words have no protection under the Michigan Constitution, the Court of Appeals had to view the content of this ordinance, and when they did, they ruled that it was neutral in nature as it applied to all speech, with no reference to the speech's actual conduct. So again, one more time. The government wrote a, in this instance, the government being the city of Owasso, they wrote an ordinance that did not limit or, or restrict the things that the person wanted to say. They just were merely looking to uh, have it apply to all speech and not cause that, that feeling of, of insult that comes from, from fighting words. So said another way, the ordinance did not try to prohibit what could be said. It was limiting what could incite an immediate breach of peace, like walking over to the fellow and punching him in the nose. That would be an immediate breach of peace. The court went on to say that regardless of the speaker's subject matter or underlying message, abusive or obscene language intended to be as such can indeed be prohibited when such words by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. This 
ordinance at issue, the court ruled, does not restrict access to other channels of communication. If Mr. Polson wanted to express his displeasure with the church hosting a Planned Parenthood anniversary celebration, there were other manners in which to share his feelings. This manner, standing 300 feet away and screaming at children as they are going inside the offensive church, is not a time, place, manner appropriate way of expressing your free speech. The court reasoned this ordinance was narrowly tailored to serve a significant governmental interest, and for that reason, Mr. Poulsen lost his first argument before the Court of Appeals. As is usually the case, an allegation of unconstitutionally vague was also brought before the court. Remember, we established in the Boomer case that ordinances and statutes can be deemed unconstitutionally vague if they fail any one of the following provisions. As a reminder, the test is... 1. The ordinance fails to provide fair notice of what conduct is prohibited. Or 2. The ordinance encourages arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. Or 3. The ordinance is so broad it sweeps safe, protected speech up with unprotected speech and criminalizes both. The Court of Appeals reminds us that the government remains free to impose restrictions upon the content of speech in a few limited areas, but the restricted speech must be of slight social value and those restrictions must benefit a social interest. So, for example, merely dropping the F-bomb over and over and over while standing on a sidewalk as people walk by provides little, if any, social value. To the contrary, there is probably great social value to restrict that sort of language. At best, it's offensive to the reasonable person, but at worst, it may incite a violent reaction from the recipient at whom the F-bomb was directed. The court said in our case here, the Owasso Ordinance tracks the definition of fighting words by prohibiting abusive or obscene language when such words by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. The ordinance makes no content-based distinction and is narrowly drawn and limited to define and punish only fighting words. For that reason, the court held, the ordinance does not sweep too broadly, nor does every application create an unreasonable risk of censorship. The court did not believe the ordinance was overbroad because it gave the citizens of Owasso fair notice within the words of the ordinance that is sought to prevent fighting words. But here, here's what's going to throw you for a loop. Mr. Poulian argues that even if the ordinance is constitutional as written, and we now know it is considered constitutional, the way it was used against Mr. Poulian was unconstitutional. And he wins! So this ordinance, which prohibits creating a public disorder, is found not to violate the right to free speech. And it's not unconstitutionally vague as written. But it was unconstitutionally applied to defendant? How? You're probably wondering to yourself. The Court of Appeals began by noting that the United States Supreme Court has set precedents rejecting the intent to inflict emotional distress as a basis for regulating protected speech. The Supreme Court of the United States has held emotional distress is not the sort of injury which is trying to be prevented when restricting fighting words. You can't restrict fighting word speech simply because it may hurt someone's feelings. If there's no injury, then you need to look to determine whether Mr. Poulian's language intended to incite an immediate breach of the peace. Here, 
the court found that no, defendant's words did not have a tendency to incite an immediate breach of the peace. The Court of Appeals concedes this language was grotesque exaggeration that was more likely to frighten children than to impart information. However, the children's mere fright did not rise to the level of violence or a disturbance of the public order, nor was such an outcome even likely. The court concluded by stating, if the purpose of the prohibition on fighting words is to preserve the public safety and order, then unprotected fighting words do not encompass words that would emotionally upset children who are unlikely to retaliate. And based on that last argument brought by defendant Pouillon, his conviction for violating the Owasso Ordinance of Disturbing the Peace was overturned by the Court of Appeals. Next case, In Ray Midland Publishing Company, 1984. In 1980, there were two separate cases of first-degree criminal sexual conduct towards child victims brought in Midland County, Michigan. Two people were charged under one of the criminal cases, and a different person was charged under a second case. Under state statute, a defendant or victim may bring forth a suppression order which temporarily protects the identities of the defendant and the victim. The defendants in their respective cases did just that. They asked for and received a suppression order restricting defendants' names from being made public. The Midland Daily newspaper filed a complaint against the suppression order because they were able to independently learn the identities of the criminal defendants, some of the details of the alleged criminal activity, and they did this through sources outside the scope of the court and court files. The newspaper argued this restriction on publishing a news article unconstitutionally restricted their free speech. Here is the crux of the state statute issue. Upon the request of counsel or the victim or the defendant in a prosecution case of specific crimes hereafter listed, a magistrate shall order that the names of the victim, defendant, and details of the alleged offense be suppressed until such time as the defendant is arraigned on the charge or until when the charge is dismissed or the case is concluded, whichever occurs first. The Michigan Supreme Court starts their analysis by declaring prior restraint imposed upon media publications is the most serious and least tolerable infringement on a free speech right. They go on to note that when the government seeks to justify the statutory requirement of prior restraint, the government must overcome a heavy presumption of unconstitutionality. But the Supreme Court is very careful to read the statute and noted that the magistrate imposes the suppression of names and details against the parties in the criminal case. The Michigan Supremes aptly point out this suppression order does not apply to these folks who are not a party to the proceeding. The court found that suppression orders are only a direction to the court personnel to prevent public disclosure of the official files. Therefore, the Michigan Supreme Court held the statute does not constitute a restraint against publication since it contemplates no sanctions against non-parties that publish the information, no matter how it's acquired. So, in our case at hand, the suppression order did not prevent the newspaper from publishing any of the information in its possession. As such, there was never any prior restraint placed upon the newspaper by the government, or anyone for that matter, as the newspaper could have published the information that it did obtain. 
prior restraint only occurs when the government prohibits publication or broadcast of particular information or commentary. In short, the newspaper misunderstood the statute as applicable to them, when in reality, it was applicable only to the parties in the criminal defense case. What about the media being prohibited to the pretrial proceedings? Well, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled that neither the media nor the general public have a constitutional right to access pre-trial proceedings. And our state Supreme Court believes that preliminary examinations are not part of a trial. At trial, the media and the public may, for the most part, have access. But these non-trial events can be closed to the public. Now, it is worth noting that the media certainly does and should have access to legal proceedings. Well, sure, a defendant has a right to a fair trial, and his right to a fair trial is greater than the public and, and media's right to observe such court hearings, but the court also points out that a defendant couldn't conspire with the prosecution to empower a judge to exclude the public and press. The defendant can't waive his right to a public trial because he doesn't want the media or public to learn of the criminal actions he took. The public possesses a right of access which complements a defendant's right to a public trial. The idea being, if a defendant's trial is open to the public, it helps to ensure fairness in the actions of both the prosecutor and the judge. But in case you're wondering about what circumstance a defendant could potentially have his trial closed to the public and the media, well, the Michigan Supreme Court said this. An accused who seeks closure has the heavy burden to show by a substantial probability that prejudicial error denying the accused a fair trial will result from proceeding in public. In addition, it must be shown by a substantial probability that closure will be effective in dealing with the danger and no alternative to closure exists that would protect the fair trial right. To conclude, the Supremes recognize that Article 1, Section 5 of the Michigan Constitution confers to the public a right of access to criminal trials. However, that right does not extend to preliminary examinations. The nature of the proceedings employed to determine probable cause has traditionally been subject to legislative enactment. Accordingly, the legislature has the power to control access to those proceedings. Consequently, the state Supreme Court said it must be concluded that the public does not enjoy any state constitutional right of access to preliminary examination. Now, if the legislature wanted to give the public and the media that right through enacting a statute, that would comply with Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution. But it doesn't require it under Article 1, Section 5. The last case we're going to discuss today is also the last case we're going to discuss on the subject of restricting freedom of speech. Now, I have to tell you, this, this specific case, which we're about to discuss, was decided at the Michigan Court of Appeals level. However, it was ultimately overruled by the Michigan Supreme Court. So why would I tell you about a case which got overruled by a higher court? Well, two reasons, honestly. First, it's my podcast and I can talk about what I want. But secondly, and more importantly to this discussion, the Michigan Supreme Court overturned the case we're about to talk about, not because the Court of Appeals got it wrong, but because the Michigan Supreme Court ruled on the case in an entirely different manner than what the Court of Appeals addressed. So let me say it more succinctly. 
The Court of Appeals addressed the case we're about to talk about from a Michigan Constitution standpoint. But the Michigan Supremes believed there was a state law on the subject such that the Michigan Constitution did not even come into play. So I'm going to discuss just the Michigan Court of Appeals standpoint of this case because they viewed the litigation within the confines of the Michigan Constitution. And because this is the Michigan Constitution podcast, that's more important to me. But what should be important to you is knowing what we're about to discuss was technically not given a thumbs up or thumbs down by the Michigan Supreme Court. They effectively went, hey, look, squirrel, and decided to run on this case in an in an entirely different platform. Therefore, I believe this opinion by the Court of Appeals is just waiting for an opportunity to be picked up like a football and carried the rest of the way down the field. So here goes. Michigan AFL-CIO versus the Michigan Civil Service Commission, 1995 and 1997. Now, to be clear, the 1995 case was heard and, and ruled upon by the Court of Appeals, and the 1997 case is the Supreme Court case, which overruled the 95 case. So this, this, this court case has two different years that are, that are at least applicable for our discussion. So here's the fact pattern. In December 1987, the United Auto Workers and the Michigan Democratic Party sponsored a training seminar on election campaign strategies. The Office of the State Employer was given notice of the three-day seminar. However, it was unaware that the seminar would involve partisan political issues. 56 state employees who happened to be part of the UAW attended the seminar. Some of those 56 state employees used something called union-sponsored administrative leave buyback, which is just a fancy way of saying the union reimbursed the state for the salaries earned by the state employees while at this seminar. The state paid the employees from the Department of Treasury, but then the Department of Treasury was reimbursed by the union. Another group of people were able to attend the seminar because the union's collective bargaining allows for union officer leave, which reimburses both the employee's salary and their health insurance costs. The Michigan Civil Service Commission, those that technically employ all state employees, investigated the meeting and as a result of their investigation, revised civil service rules to prohibit political activity while on the clock of the state of Michigan and receiving a state of Michigan paycheck the unions sued. They alleged that being on union time is the same as being on vacation time. And if an employee of the state of Michigan could campaign while on vacation time, that same employee should be allowed to campaign while on union time. The theory, the union claims, is that whether you are on vacation time or union time, you are still off duty from your role and responsibilities as a state of Michigan employee. And because the Civil Service Commission could never tell you how to spend your time while on vacation, you know, whether it's a trip to Las Vegas or a trip to the local county Democratic headquarters, neither can the Civil Service Commission tell you how to spend your hours while on union time. The Michigan Court of Appeals held that restricting activities while on union time is different than taking vacation time and as such does not violate the state of Michigan's employees' right of freedom of expression and association under the Michigan Constitution. To begin, the court notes that the union agrees the Civil Service Commission has the authority to regulate state of Michigan employees' political activities on the job. Additionally, the union agrees it is perfectly constitutional to prohibit a state of Michigan employee from engaging in political activity while on duty. 
and because the Court of Appeals believes that union leave constitutes actual duty, meaning that they're on the clock, then the regulation of the Civil Service Commission should be looked at from both on and off the clock behavior. The court believes that the regulation does not regulate the speech and association of a state of Michigan employee while they are off duty. The Court of Appeals also rejected the idea that state of Michigan employees have a right under the Michigan Constitution to actively participate in partisan politics, whether they're on or off the job. The Michigan Court of Appeals followed the lead of the United States Supreme Court by adopting the philosophy that restricting partisan political activity of those in government service ensures that employment decisions occur on the basis of meritorious performance and not on the basis of political affiliation. You know, said another way, you're getting this job because you are qualified for the job, not because you happen to campaign for the governor and because the governor got elected, you get put into this cushy job. No, you're getting the job based on your your merits, your qualifications. Next, the union argued that this was a regulation of speech on the basis of content in violation of Michigan Constitution's Article 1, Section 5. But again, the Court of Appeals rejected that stance. They again looked to the Supreme Court of the United States, who had previously addressed this at the federal level. Our court here believes neither Article 1, Section 5 of the Michigan Constitution, nor any other provision of our state constitution prevents a law barring this kind of partisan political conduct for state of Michigan employees. Also, the court points out, Michigan has chosen to provide state of Michigan employees a broader degree of political freedoms than federal employees receive. But the court still argued that the adoption of the civil service system limits the prohibition of state of Michigan employees' political activities to on-duty hours. Even our own Michigan Supreme Court found that the Civil Service Commission has authority to regulate employment-related activity involving matters such as job specifications, compensation, grievance procedures, discipline, uh, collective bargaining, and job performance, including the power to prohibit activity during working hours, which is found to interfere with satisfactory job performance. Therefore, the Court of Appeals found... The regulation, as crafted, properly effects a legitimate ban on partisan political activity during actual duty hours. Nothing in the rule, the court contends, offended a recognized Michigan constitutional right to free speech or assembly. The state government, as an employer, most assuredly may restrict the partisan political activity of its employees while they are on duty. One last argument the union attempted was to convince the Court of Appeals this regulation was vague and overbroad. They did not buy it. They first laid out the three elements used to evaluate vagueness. Those are, if it's overbroad, thus impinging on the uh, Article 1, Section 5 freedoms, or if the regulation does not provide fair notice of the content prohibited, or if the regulation is so indefinite that it confers unstructured and unlimited discretion on the trier of fact to determine whether an offense has been committed. The Michigan Court of Appeals said that when applying these standards, the union fails in their argument for vagueness for the following reasons. First, the regulation indeed provides fair notice of prohibited conduct. 
the meaning of the words they said can be ascertained by reference to judicial determinations, to the common law, to dictionaries and the words themselves. Even if, as the union argued, there is no delineation between what constitutes partisan political activity from nonpartisan, the Court of Appeals said this is not so ambiguous a term that an individual of ordinary intelligence couldn't otherwise figure it out on its face. If they couldn't, again, they have use of dictionaries, etc., to provide them the guidance they seek. But finally, the court points out that the regulations prohibit on-duty political activity, whether it's partisan or not. They contend that union leave is designated for union activity, not for political activities. Now, before I close out, let me briefly touch on the Michigan Supreme Court's opinion and why they overturned this Court of Appeals opinion. Like I said earlier, it's not because they believe this prohibition runs afoul of the Michigan Constitution. To the contrary, they never even address the regulation from a constitutional standpoint. The Michigan Supreme Court addresses the prohibition from a statutory standpoint because they believed the Michigan legislature wanted to permit it by law. In 1976, the Michigan legislature enacted the Political Activities by Public Employees Act. In it, the Michigan legislature provided protections by ensuring the personal freedoms to engage in partisan political activity while on a mandatory leave of absence. When the constitutionality of this act was challenged in 1980, the Michigan Supreme Court determined that the state could not regulate the off-duty political activities of state of Michigan employees unless those activities were found to interfere with the employee's job performance. In this case at hand, the Michigan Supreme Court, by a vote of 4-3, to three, expanded their 1980 determination by stating now union leave is not actual duty under the concept of the duty you have to the employer. The Supremes thought that whether an activity was off-duty or on-duty depended upon the particular circumstances of the activity in question. The majority of justices concluded that one, the state of Michigan employees were not technically getting paid by the state of Michigan because the monies paid by the state to the employees was being reimbursed by the union. Essentially, the state was made whole by the union. The taxpayers of Michigan were technically funding the state of Michigan employees on union leave. So, said a different way, yes, the state of Michigan was down hypothetically $1 million by paying the state of Michigan employees to go on union leave. That money went from the taxpayers to the state treasury and from the state treasury into the state of Michigan employees' paychecks. But because the union reimbursed the state treasury the $1 million, then the balance of the state treasury was put back to exactly where it should be. The state was made whole by the union. But secondarily, the justices reasoned that compensation being made was not for the performance of the state of Michigan employees' job duties. Think of it this way. When a state of Michigan employee takes 40 hours of vacation time to visit Europe, you can't argue that 40 hours of compensation was for state of Michigan job duties simply because the state of Michigan paid that employee 40 hours worth of compensation. To the contrary, most full-time employees earn a certain number of vacation hours per year, and those banked hours are allowed to be used by the employee for whatever that employee wishes to use those vacation hours for. 
Same holds true here, the justices argued, regarding union leave. A fringe benefit of being part of a union is a certain number of hours accumulated by the union employee to use doing quote-unquote union activities, which are not part of the employee's job duties. Therefore, the Supremes opined, when the state of Michigan employees use a portion of his or her union leave hours, they are no longer performing state of Michigan job duties. They are now engaged in union activities while on union leave time. The Michigan Supreme Court essentially considered union leave time to be a different pool of hours, but similar in nature to vacation hours. On vacation leave, you can go do whatever you want. The state of Michigan has no say over whether you sleep for 40 work hours, go gamble in Las Vegas for 40 work hours, or go camping in the mountains of Machu Picchu for 40 hours. That time is your time. It involves no related state of Michigan work. The same is similarly true with union leave. The only parameters placed on union leave is that you must be engaged in union activity during those hours. And that is allowable because of collective bargaining and political freedoms as described in the Political Activities of Public Employees Act. So, based on that act, the Michigan Supreme Court did not believe a conversation regarding Michigan's Constitution even needed to be had over this union activity. They believed the prohibition on political activity by the Civil Service Commission regulation was in violation of the Political Activities of Public Employees Act, thus completely sidestepping the constitutional arguments. So, for a little legal commentary, and note that I said legal commentary, not political commentary, whether you think this Michigan Supreme Court case was decided based on the union-supported politics of the majority of justices or not, I want to discuss my legal take on this opinion. I think it was a calculated move by the Michigan justices to rely upon the Political Activities of Public Employees Act while sidestepping the constitutional arguments. I say that because the Michigan Constitution will always trump a state statute. A state statute is always subservient to our state constitution. But what the justices did in this case was to say, well, whoa, 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 why are we even worried about the Michigan Constitution? We have a state statute on point here, which allows this union leave to be political activity. The justices did not think that a discussion on the constitutionality of the Civil Service Commission's regulatory prohibition was needed because the Michigan legislature already spoke to the specific actions the regulation tried to address. Specifically, engaging in political activity. And if the act says the employee can do it, they just can't be on the state's dime at the time they're doing this activity. Well, therefore, it's permitted under the act. So the Supremes thusly had to determine whether or not union leave was to be considered the equivalent of vacation time. Namely, you're not being paid to perform your state of Michigan employee job responsibilities. So in my legal opinion, I think the Michigan Court of Appeals got it right. Again, the Michigan Constitution trumps state statute. Article 1, Section 5 addresses freedom of political speech and association. You can limit that speech under some circumstances. That was what the Civil Service Commission attempted to do by limiting the political activity of state of Michigan employees while engaging in union leave. 
the state of Michigan employee was receiving money from the state treasury while engaged in union activity. If the activities were not political in nature, I could understand the value in a state of Michigan union employee doing things that are directly related to the union. Perhaps it was electing union leadership, voting on union platforms, things that were directly tied to the union itself. That is a logical use of union time. But here, in our case, the union state of Michigan employee was going to engage not just in political activity in general, but specific partisan political activity. Remember, this was an event that was put together by the UAW and the Michigan Democratic Party. This wasn't just a, hey, here's how you can sign people up to, to get them eligible to vote, or here's a way that you can teach your neighbor where the local voting booth are going to be held. No, this was actual partisan training put together by a specific political party that these union state of Michigan employees were getting paid to go engage in. The argument that the union reimburses the state of Michigan for the time the union employees engage in partisan political activity seems to fly in the face of what taxpayers believe is a legitimate use of taxpayer dollars. Even if the state is made whole, they are being made whole by the entity benefiting from the state of Michigan employees' partisan political time. Said another way, yeah, the state of Michigan is getting paid back from the union, but the union is benefiting from the employees being there learning how to get Democrats elected, which would then subsequently pay for more union dues, giving them a bigger bank coffer. That is what I mean when they say they are being benefited from the state of Michigan employees' political partisan time. So for the Michigan Supreme Court to rely upon the Political Activity of Public Employees Act is, in my opinion, to sidestep the Civil Service Commission's attempt to keep state of Michigan employees' activity above board, which I do believe is allowed under the Michigan Constitutional Article 1, Section 5. All right, listen, that's going to do it for episode number 13 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. Next time, we're going to discuss when commercial speech may be limited, especially if that commercial speech involves pornography. We'll also discuss under what circumstances your political speech may or may not be limited. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at TonySnyder.com.